Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, a new year begins, but the problems are the same as the ones we left behind last year. We talk about the latest lockdowns in Ontario, Quebec, and around the country. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to the Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. It is January 4th, 2022. Uh, so, no, hang on. No, it is March 20th, 2020, I think. Has it even changed? 2021, 2020, 2022, 2026, 17 years to flatten the curve. My goodness, we left the old year behind and the new year is pretty much as bad as the old year. I was going to start the show with some amusing anecdote about, oh, you know, this thing that happened to me over Christmas time or whatever. Uh, the reality is I was very fortunate enough to have a, a great family dinner. It would be, I mean, <laughs> it might have actually been illegal when I held it, but it would definitely be illegal now in Ontario as gathering restrictions are down to just five people indoors or 10 people outdoors. So if you are a uh, an Eastern Ontarian that would like to have a, a big, uh, you know, 10-person dinner outside in the Ontario cold this January, you're more than welcome to. Uh, but for the rest of you that uh, want to hunker down indoors, no more than five people allowed. Uh, but maybe you can go to a restaurant, right? Well, no, you can't because the restaurants have been shut down. The gyms have been shut down. The movie theaters have been shut down. Pretty much anything in Ontario that the government has deemed non-essential is now no more. And how long is this going to happen? Well, just, just 21 days. Oh, hang on. No, 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 not 21 days. Let's look at the text here from the Ontario government. At least 21 days. They're not even pretending that this is going to be on a fixed term. Three days after the Ontario government said that students would be back in the classroom as of Wednesday, January 5th, uh, just three days after that, they've said, uh, okay, we changed our minds. Now they're going to be shoved to virtual learning again for at least two weeks. So January has already become, in the eyes of the Ontario government, a write-off. The liberties that uh, people were told they could get if they just got vaccinated are now no longer. So basically, whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated, your experience in Ontario is pretty much the same. And you know what? It's not much different in Quebec. We'll be doing a deep dive into the Quebec situation later on in the show with Marie Oakes, who's doing some fantastic journalism about what's going on there. Uh, they're the only province that can serve as the answer to the question, where is a worse place in North America to live than Ontario? So uh, congratulations, Quebec. You have that honor, at least, with your curfew and prohibition on Sunday shopping. Not for puritanical reasons, but for COVID reasons. Yeah, that's exactly how things are here. So the Omicron variant, lest there be any doubt, is still, if you look at the numbers, proving to be mild. Pretty much everyone knows someone who's got it at this point. Now, I've been talking to a lot of people. I, so far, as best as I can figure out, have managed to avoid the Omicron variant. I know lots of people who have had it, lots of people who are isolating because someone they know has had it. And every single, this is not hyperbole, every single one of them is reporting it as being a mild condition. One person told me it was the least sick they've ever been when they've been sick. That's what the Omicron variant is. 
So we are now shutting down the province's economy in Ontario, in Quebec, probably elsewhere in the country as well, over something that is in many cases, in fact, in most cases, better, or at least no worse than the common cold. And no one in political leadership in these provinces was prepared to stand up and say, you know what, we're not going along with it. Now, the variable is that I think ordinary citizens are. I predicted a few weeks ago that we were at a bit of a turning point here. That a lot of people who dutifully did what the government asked them to do, instead they were going to, you know, roll up their sleeves and do the hard work and get vaccinated and stay home to save lives and clatter, clatter what is it, clang and bang their pots and pans for healthcare workers. All of those people, I thought a couple of weeks ago, were finally saying enough. Well, now I think this has pushed them over the edge. Parents in particular are saying that it is just unconscionable. They are not able to abide. I mean, not that they really have a choice, but they don't want to abide by this prohibition on students re-entering the classroom, at least for a couple of weeks in January. And further to that, you've got people that, again, are restaurants that barely survived lockdowns one, two, and three, in many cases that didn't survive them, are now being told they have to shut their doors yet again, all in a month that was already going to be difficult for them. So what the hell is a person in Canada supposed to think, apart from that there is no future in this country anymore? This is a legitimate question that I have to ask. You know, I got criticized a couple of weeks ago. I think it was the Religious Freedom Panel. I got an email from someone who said, you know, I, I don't like that Andrew uh, can smile and, you know, make a joke when he's talking about a very serious topic. The position I've always taken on this is twofold. Number one, no one can sustain being mad all the time. It's not particularly constructive. It's not particularly sanity-inducing. It's the opposite. The other part is that if the world is going to hell in a handbasket, we should at least be able to enjoy the ride down. That's been my attitude on that. And, and there's a reason I've always been a big fan and have become a good friend of Mark Stein, because I've always respected his commitment to trying to find the lighter side of, of even very dark and serious topics. But the other aspect of this is that when you don't keep your volume at 11, for the entirety of anything you say on any show, when you do bring it up, it has a lot more of an impact. And that's where I am now on this. I mean, I've been fed up for a long time. I've been pessimistic for a long time. I've been demoralized for a long time. Don't let my cheery disposition take away from that fact that I, I was at a breaking point months ago. And I, I had to make a point, as any freedom-loving person does, that the pandemic was over. And nothing in the Omicron panic has changed that. If anything, the more I've seen, the more data I've seen has made me more strong in my resolve. That this is not something about which we need to worry. Now, we're at the point where if you, you have two conflicting narratives, you have on one hand lawmakers saying this is the pandemic of the unvaccinated. It's the unvaccinated who are dragging us down. And then at the same time, you have all of these places that have introduced vaccine passports that are being shut down because, well, the vaccine passport apparently didn't make the restaurants safer. The vaccine passport didn't make the gym safer. The vaccine passport, anywhere that the vaccine passport was mandated that's now been shut down should serve as evidence that governments failed that their vaunted vaccine passport did nothing. 
But then it's like, oh, no, no, no. It's like the, it's the apologists for the vaccine passports are like the apologists for communism of like, you know, real communism hasn't been tried. No, no, no. Real vaccine passports haven't been tried. That was all the two-dose vaccine passport. What's really going to save us now is the three-dose vaccine passport. Yeah, once we do that, then we'll be on to the four-dose vaccine passport. Same as masks didn't work. So it's no, no, no. It was the wrong type of masks. So at a certain point with the goalpost just in overdrive here, it's got to be, you need to be double uh, N95 masked, quadruple vaccinated, show your vaccine passport and three uh, pictures of photo ID and the negative PCR, and then a negative rapid test every 10 minutes. And, and once you do that, then it's going to be fine. <laughs> I, it would be laughable if it weren't so angering. And that's where we are now. So all of the measures that have failed, all of the measures that have brought us to precisely the point we're at now, at which in 2022, the third year of COVID, the third calendar year of COVID, all of the stuff that's brought us to needing another lockdown at this point is somehow the antidote to what ails us. All of these things that have failed are now what are required to get us. We're, we're almost there. We're almost there. Remember in 2020 when Justin Trudeau said, well, we still got a shot at Christmas. Christmas 2023, maybe. Christmas 2024, at some Christmas, at some point in the future, we may have a shot at getting back to normal. Not the last one, not the one before that, and not the next couple while we're at it. So I don't have the answer to this. I, I have roots in this country. You know, I've always been open to traveling and seeing the world, and I, I've had many privileged opportunities to do that. I, I've never imagined myself being the kind that just wants to load up the car and flee for the border and not look back. But, but I know, without exaggerating, a number of people who have done that, people that decided, and again, it's obviously people of a certain means that can do that, that have decided they're going to take a little bit of time away, and maybe they don't come back. In fact, the guest I'm going to have later on in the program has done precisely that. Now, she had the benefit of dual citizenship with the United States. But, but again, a lot of people are trying to find ways. And for some of them, it's just, you know what, I, I just want to live the Ron DeSantis life in Florida. For other people, especially those with children, it's a lot more fundamental. Their children's childhood, a child's childhood, which you get one shot at, is now being jeopardized or just completely obliterated by government fiat. You can't socialize. You have to mask up for hours and hours a day to go to school, or you don't get to school at all. You've got to do it virtually. You are now, as a child, relegated to days and days of Zoom meetings like mid-level uh, administrative types in adulthood are. And this is now something that we're just supposed to accept is normal. I saw a tweet from a Toronto District School Board trustee the other day talking about how, oh, children are resilient and, you know, they're going to get through this. And, and give me, like, just give me a break. Give me a break. We, we can't just keep holding up the mythical resilience of children, which, by the way, is not infinite, and say that that is going to trump all of the things that we are taking away from the children of today by denying them the right to live their lives. You look at a six-year-old who will soon come to the point at which half of their lives, half of their alert, aware lives has been in some form of lockdown. Kids who do not understand that schooling is not supposed to be this thing that is completely masked. People where there is no old normal because they only know the normal in which they've been raised, and that is the pandemic alarmist world. A world that the longer it goes on becomes more ingratiated 
in our sense of what is normal and what is acceptable. I, I was moderating uh, the week before Christmas a, a great panel with Canada Strong and Free Network, and we had uh, people on it that I, I thought were absolutely fantastic. We had Tasha Kiridan, we had Danielle Smith, and specifically those two had a, a very interesting uh, disagreement on the vaccine passports. And, and Tasha made the point, and I, I don't want to put words in her mouth here, and you can watch the video if you go and look on the Canada Strong and Free Network's website. But uh, Tasha Kiridan ha had made the point that a lot of these measures are, are just the way that we can get back to normal. That It's just the best way to get back to normal. Same as that uh, question I, I told you that I put out on Twitter a few weeks back about masking on airplanes. I, I said, do you ever think masks are going away on planes? And a lot of people said, oh, come on. It, you know, if, it's, if that's what gets rid of the vaccine passport, if that's what gets rid of other restrictions, the mask on the plane is fine. The problem with that thinking is that you're starting from a losing position because you're already saying that the old normal is never coming back. So you start to negotiate for your freedom and negotiate for your life. And you start to say, okay, well, yeah, all right, yeah, you know, I guess I can just wear the mask or I guess I can do the vaccine passport. I, I guess I can do all that. You start to view these things, which again, prove the point that you've lost something. So no, I, I'm actually done, as I have been for quite a while with half measures. Nothing short of a declaration from citizens that we will not abide is going to bring back what has been taken away. Not what's been lost, but what has been and continues to be taken away by governments, by cowardly, cowardly governments. And I don't even know what they're responding to. because, Like I mentioned, historically, polling has been very lockdown happy. I do think that's changing, especially when you're talking about the treatment of children and what's happening to kids in schools. So I don't know what polls these politicians are following. We know they're not following the science. You've got to assume, I don't think they're following their own moral compasses because that would suggest they had moral compasses to follow. So if they're not following science, they're not following a moral compass, they're maybe not following polling. What is it they are following? I mean, it's got to be one of those things. Maybe it is polling after all. I don't know. If so, perhaps that would be changing. Or is it that they genuinely believe that these doomsday projections, that we're going to have hundreds, this is what Doug Ford said, we're going to have hundreds of thousands of cases a day. And the number he gave, that 1% of Omicron cases will end up in the hospital. And when we get hundreds, hundreds of thousands of cases a day, 1% of those will overwhelm the healthcare system. The healthcare system has not yet been overwhelmed. And I, I mentioned this point on Twitter, which got a fair bit of support and also a fair bit of pushback as well. If the people who are telling us why we need to lock down and hunker down and shelter in place and all of that, are doing it because, in their words, we need to protect the healthcare system from being overwhelmed. Why is nobody asking the obvious? Well, aren't you the ones responsible for the healthcare system? We've had two years of this. If in two years the people in charge of the healthcare system haven't been able to protect it from getting overwhelmed, why are we listening to these people on anything at all? They failed. Why are they still the ones running the show? Why do they still have any legitimacy or any authority at all in this area? I, I want to play a clip here if I can. And I don't think this was a misspeak. I, I think this was actually what he meant. Doug Ford was talking about his decision-making process 
on this latest lockdown in Ontario and the length of time it took to make the decision. I, I want you to just take a listen. We want to make sure that we protect the, the frontline healthcare workers. We want to make sure we, we protect uh, the students and the teachers along, along with the general public. Uh, you know, this took me about 30 seconds to make a decision. It was a decisive decision and uh, we're going to make sure that uh, we, we go through this and be as cautious as possible and use every tool in our toolbox uh, to sustain not only our health care, but our economy as well. 30 seconds, he says. 30 seconds, that was all it took to make this decision to shut down restaurants, shut down gyms, shut down movie theaters, and all of that. 30 seconds. Now, let's start with debunking that, because the day prior, there was a, a, I think it was like a six-hour-long cabinet meeting in which this all was being discussed, like six hours long. And keep in mind, Ontario legislators are going back to the polls in May of this year. So they've got an election in uh, basically basically five months that they've got to contend with. But 30 seconds, he says, it took to make the decision. The meeting the day before was six hours long. And more importantly, three days prior to the announcement, as I mentioned earlier, the province had doubled down that schools were going to reopen and students were going to be in class the first week of January, this very week, starting tomorrow. So all of that is to say that there isn't actually much in the way of support that it only took 30 seconds. But, but even if it did, why is that a selling point? Why is taking less than a minute to plunge your province into yet another lockdown something that you feel gives you more credibility on this file? And earlier on, incidentally, he talked about how difficult a decision it was. And Christine Elliott, the health minister, said something very simple. I mean, at this point, any goodwill that existed towards government, any trust that existed towards government in the minds of Canadians, I'm not talking about Ontarians here, of Canadians writ large, I, I think has probably been obliterated. At the very least harmed, but I, I would say outright obliterated. I, I don't think there's anyone now that is looking to public health officials and saying, yeah, you know, they've really got a solid head on their shoulders. They know what they're doing. I, and that works, by the way, for the pro-lockdown people either. Because remember, a lot of folks think that governments are not doing enough. There are lots of people, and it's terrifying if you pay attention to, oh, I don't know, Dr. Twitter, for example. Not all of them, but some of them. People that think government should lock down everything, lock down for longer. People who are utterly unconcerned with civil liberties, who, who don't even think those should factor into the equation. So the message that I bring you as we start 2022, not a good one, I realize that. Things are exactly the same as they were in the year we just left and a little bit worse. What's the takeaway from that? Again, I have to reiterate the point that I made earlier in this show and in previous shows, which is that the pandemic is over when you say it is over. Decide what you want. Assess your own risk level. I'm not saying COVID has no risk. I'm not saying Omicron has no risk. I'm not saying don't get vaccinated. I, I've been very clear. I am vaccinated, haven't gotten the booster, but I am completely in favor of people making their own choices. And I respect your right to make those choices if you respect my right to make whatever choices I make. But the point of this, and, and I think where we as a country need to go from here, is that anyone, anyone who did something because government told them it was the way out, has egg on their face. I mean, there's no other way around it. If you made a decision because you believed in it, good on you. That's the whole point of it. 
But if you did it because you believed that government had your interests at heart, the government was going to hold up its end of the bargain, well, the joke's on you now. And I, I don't say that to gloat because I, I wanted to believe as well. I haven't believed for a while, but at the very beginning, you remember the two weeks to flatten the curve? We're all in this together, the pots and pans. I, I really wanted to believe that civic spirit would do it, would carry us through. But it didn't, and it won't. So why is there any reason to believe that it will now? I've been spending a fair bit of time, I realize, on Ontario. Now, again, I did a great interview. I think it was great anyway. Uh, before the break with Jason Kenney, we cover the whole country here. One province I don't cover all that often, admittedly, is Quebec. And, and part of that is because it, it's very difficult to find good reporting coming out of Quebec. Uh, but one person who's been doing a tremendous amount of that is Marie Oakes with the Westphalian Times, who has been doing what uh, no other English language journalists are in Quebec with it with a couple of exceptions. I, I think Rebel does some great work there and, and has a small team. But again, hard to compete with the Radio Canada and the Montreal Gazettes, which are, are doing a lot of less than stellar reporting on the pandemic. Marie Oakes joins me now. Good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Well, thank you, Andrew, for having me on. And yeah, that was kind of my focus when I even got involved on the internet was that's exactly what I noticed. People were not really looking at what was happening in Quebec, and I was pretty shocked. A lot of it is in the French media, but it doesn't really make its way to English media, whether it be the Wii scandal and, you know, all the happenings in Quebec with that, or like we're going to talk about lockdowns, curfews, those sort of things that most Canadians and even Americans have no idea that's even going on. Yeah, well, I, I think that's so key. And, and I mean, obviously, we, we don't have time to go through the litany of, you know, reasons that Quebec and the rest of Canada are, are distinct places. But I, I know we have seen a little bit of media coverage in the last few weeks about Bill 21, for example, the uh, the religious symbols uh, ban, because that uh, had a, a rearing of its head in the last little while. And I, I think that underscored that Quebec tends to get away with a lot, in, in part because you have this this political and media culture that, that tends not to want to confront these issues issues head on. So you bring that into a lockdown context. Quebec is the only province in the country that has not just imposed a curfew, but has now, as of New Year's Eve, reimposed a curfew. So you can actually be fined just for walking around outside your home in Quebec in the evening. Yeah. And the thing that's so insane about this is the last curfew was 8 p.m. So a lot of people who are workers, essential workers, they couldn't do their grocery shopping. Most people get off work, say, 5 or 6 p.m. Well, most of the grocery stores were closing at 7 p.m. an hour before the curfew was put in place because they need to get home, too, because they don't want to get stopped by police. And it just became really tedious for so many people. And this go around, I think a lot of people are noticing police are less likely to pull you over, less likely to give you as hard of a time because I think even they are realizing how annoying this is for them to even enforce. I mean, obviously, there's going to be those police officers who will be enforcing it. But what I'm hearing from people on the ground is it seems like everyone's changing their tune with this go around with the curfew. 
that's actually an interesting point you raised because I, I know last time you had uh, Yankee Pollack with Rebel News, who I think was just on a matter of principle, just walking around Quebec after curfew every 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 night, and he was reporting what was happening there, and and we were seeing that police were being very aggressive, not just with him but with other people they were encountering. So you're thinking this time in the first few days this has been on the books, police in in, in Quebec or even Montreal specifically, you think they've pared things down a little bit. Oh, they definitely have. I mean, of course, there's going to be those city police that like this ounce of power, you know, feel like it's their duty to enforce this. But we're also seeing they're being a bit more lenient with, say, the other night when there was the curfew protesters. They didn't right away give them a bunch of fines. They waited about 30 minutes to an hour and then they gave the fines after, you know, telling a few of them, hey, you want to leave or else you're going to get a ticket. And I talked to some people and they said, yeah, I left. I did not want to get that ticket. You know, I made my point. I'm leaving. So I know it's hard to ascribe motive, but from your conversations or even just your intuition, do you think that police are being deliberately laxer on this because of, of perhaps not fully buying into it or do you think they're concerned about what we're seeing in Europe what we're seeing in places like Amsterdam in places like Vienna where where citizens are are saying you know what we're we're not taking this anymore and and the protests become a lot more heated I mean that's possible I wouldn't think a police officer would be really necessarily thinking about that because like we even discussed most people in Canada don't even really know what's happening in Quebec so to really think that people in Quebec exactly know the situation happening in Europe I don't really think that would be the case I just think everyone's pretty exhausted I mean I'm seeing people on the ground who are pretty before they were fine with the restrictions they understood it really speaking out not scared of the consequences of them speaking out in their social circles. I'm seeing a lot of young people being pretty upset by this. And the police force, say, in a place like Montreal, is quite young. So I think they're also just fed up at this point, thinking, oh, we have to do this again, because the po- it didn't make the police look super good, because the curfew is, I would say, generally not very popular. But there was just so many people in Quebec being like, even though I don't think the curfew necessarily works i'm happy that the government is putting at least something in place to make me feel safer would it be fair to say that quebec has been the most locked down jurisdiction in canada uh, except for perhaps you know like the northern territories which i know have had some some very restrictive measures i mean definitely i don't think anywhere else has had this curfew i would say in overall north america and totality you're seeing so many people in quebec fleeing Quebec they're either going to Florida for vacation because they're like okay these restrictions may last four months and then come spring they're gonna lift them again and I'm seeing so many people in Quebec move their entire livelihood their livelihoods their entire lives to Mexico I, I know like a large amount of people who did that the first lockdown but now even more people this go around well, you did a video not long ago talking about your, yourself making an exodus from Canada. Explain what led to that. Well, so I am both Canadian and American, so I don't want to get a bunch of messages asking how I did it. So that's how I was able to leave. <laughs> yeah, you'll, you'll be uh, do... dispensing immigration advice for the next uh, several weeks now, thanks to that. Okay, she, she got in the easy <laughs> way. She had citizenship. <laughs> yeah, because a lot of people 
do ask me, how did you do it? How did you do it? And unfortunately, like I can't give that information. I wish I had more, you know, information of how you can do it as well. But the reason I did it was with all the border restrictions, it was nearly impossible for my family who did not have their Canadian citizenship for them to see me. And it was just so hard for me to also go see them and have to deal with the quarantining process on the way back. I have many animals. I'm an animal lover. I could not logistically figure out how I could be two-week quarantine, not allowed to leave my house and own dogs. So it just did not make logistical sense because there was no exemption for quarantine if you had to walk an animal. And I lived in an apartment, so it was impossible. So at that point, I was like, I miss my family. I do not believe Quebec is ever going to be getting out of these lockdowns. I have been predicting it for over a year now that this was going to happen again. There was going to be another curfew. They were going to be really strong on restrictions because a lot of people in Quebec do accept these restrictions and the popularity of the government's extremely high. So I just had a really bad outlook on the situation. And unfortunately, I had a family member in the U.S. become really sick. They had a stroke and I wouldn't have been able to say goodbye to them. Luckily, they lived through this, but I wanted to spend time with my family. And I think a lot of people feel very similar to me. And that's why they're also getting their entire family out of places like Quebec and other places in Canada and going to places like Mexico where they feel like they can live their lives. Yeah, I mean, I never thought, you know, Mexico would be the bastion of liberty lovers, but I, I've heard from a few people that, that have, or, or more commonly, people that have decided to go down to Florida and, and Texas. And I'm glad you shared what you did, Marie, because in a lot of cases, people tend to talk about this in, in ideological terms of, you know, I, I'm tired of living in an unfree place. I want to go to a free place. You've just described there some, some very real and very legitimate reasons where you could not live your lives. It wasn't just this moral objection to continuing to live in Quebec, but but actually an inability to live your life and, and interact with your family and your pets the way I think any person should be able to. Yeah, it was just such a heavy burden on me because the more and more I lived in Quebec, I lived in Quebec for about, I think, six or seven years. I first was like, oh, I want to get out of here. I don't like it here. And then I really put my roots down in Quebec. I was looking at, you know, possibly buying my first home in St. Adele. I was thinking about staying for the rest of my life. Even though I'm an Anglophone, I was like, okay, I'm going to try and figure this out. Even though there was already so many blockades for me to live in Quebec. I'm a type one diabetic, very hard to get in the healthcare system in Quebec for that reason. And the Quebec government really just pushed me out. And so did the federal government with the border restrictions and even the U.S. government with their also restrictions with Canada. It was just this whole tornado. I thought right now at this time I'd be living the rest of my life in you know, a more rural part of Quebec, but obviously that didn't happen. I just out of curiosity here, do you find in Quebec, because you mentioned that people tend to support what's happening, and that I, I don't think is unique to Quebec. That's been one of the, the biggest disheartening things I've seen elsewhere. Now, I, I think the last lockdown might be the, the exception in Ontario, but a lot of people seem to be willing to go along with this. Do you find there's a language divide where, where Anglo-Quebecers and Franco-Quebecers are approaching this differently, or does that not factor into it from what you've seen? I don't know if that's necessarily a factor. I would say the factor is with the French is only 
so far as because they are stuck in this ecosystem or this echo chamber of the French media. And the French media in Quebec is really pro-lockdown. There was even a journalist at the last last press conference saying, you know, this is the consequences of letting unvaccinated people like be allowed to be in Quebec and asking if they're going to mandate the vaccine for everyone, how that might happen. I don't really know exactly. And asking if they're going to extend the vaccine passport to more places than it already is. So you have a media in Quebec that has no pushback. There's no like opposition media, like say maybe more so in English-speaking part of Canada or like the U.S. So I think a lot of that is the issue with Quebec and for Francophone speakers is really the only media they have access to is a media that upholds the government rule, doesn't speak against it, is no opposition to the government, is a talking piece for the government, is super pro-lockdown, super pro-restrictions, where it just becomes really difficult for anyone who is French speaking to break out of that bubble because all they know is that. And when there has been, you know, this media, this radio show in Quebec City that was speaking out against the government, the government pulled their ads. So they gave them a consequence. Hey, you're speaking out against us. Well, the way you make money is through government ads, like so many media all over Canada. So that that's what they'll do in opposition times. Yeah, very well said. But I, as I mentioned uh, when we were setting up this interview, even with you having fled Quebec, you still do a better job covering the story of what's happening in Quebec with lockdown than any other English reporters in Canada. And I'd venture to say probably a lot of the uh, the French reporters too. I, I just don't follow their work as much as I probably could. Uh, Marie Oaks of the Westphalian Times, an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much for coming on today. Thank you, Andrew. Have a good one. That was Marie Oaks. And that point she mentioned, by the way, about government pulling advertising is a very significant one. Now, I would say it's why media outlets should not themselves depend on government revenue, even if it's coming in through advertising, that they're still reliant on government through and through. And it was interesting. So we, we put our shows up everywhere because our, our whole point is that we're donor supported. We don't put our content behind a paywall. So we make our content available, which means we upload it to Rumble, to Facebook, to Twitter, to YouTube, to our own website. And every now and then, I got one about a week or so back, every now and then we'll get an angry email from someone that like is, is incredibly that we would accept advertising money from, you know, client X. The most recent one I got was someone wanting to know how dare we accept advertising from the RCMP union, which is running ads uh, against the proposal of an Alberta police force. And this was, I was like on Christmas holiday. I'm like, what, what, what on earth is this person talking? About? And then I realized that uh, YouTube sometimes will automatically put stuff in through its algorithm that we don't take. And we, we do get money from that through YouTube, uh, but, but, but we have no say or control until it happens. And if it happens, then we can go back and we can say, you know, we, we don't want ads from this person person or this person or, or this person. But uh, I, I don't even think we do. I have no idea how any of that works. And I, I'm glad I just focus on the show. But I was like, hang on, why am I getting in trouble for something I didn't even know about? But that's why. But we do not knowingly <laughs> accept any government advertising and, and nor do we accept government funding in, in general. And I think the importance of that is that the government can't hold anything over you as in that case that Marie was just talking about. Uh, with that, we have to bid you adieu. But I, I have to put in the plug because we don't have government money. 
We do very much need financial support from those who value the work that we do. And I, I know January is a tough month. People racked up the credit cards. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you are interested in the work we're doing and you want to support us, you can head on over to donate.tnc.news and, and know how greatly we appreciate that. We've got to wrap things there. My thanks to you all. We'll talk to you in a couple days' time with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you, God bless, and good day. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.